um, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to him. So Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين سيدنا وحبيبنا مصطفى سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين um, Thank you for turning up I've been asked to do just say a few <coughs> excuse me say a few words about the project and really what we've been doing for the last four or five years um, by way of introduction the project itself the classification of the sciences uh, as you might know had begun in 2015 it had been talked about before but really in earnest it had begun in 2015 and we still haven't done the launch of the project we're waiting for Sidi Mustafa Staya whose paper is still to be published uh, and until then, because of the nature of the project, uh, the completeness of the vision of it is not going to be very apparent until that paper comes out. The three papers are really inseparable. They do different things, but they are inseparable. And so I emphasize that. So this isn't really a launch. This is just a conversation, hopefully, to start with you. Um, and uh, Sheikh Hassan has already started. Uh, explicating his paper in a magisterial way and uh, I'm learning a lot actually even having even though having read it uh, many times in the last few years uh, it's a different thing to see an author pronouncing on his own uh, ideas and thoughts as exemplified in the paper um, I'm not going to uh, because I can't but I'm not going to uh, pontificate about matters which are really far beyond my ken. I'm not a metaphysician, I'm not a philosopher, I'm somebody who's interested and who was tasked with doing this project. And in that sense, I'm just here to share things with you and to learn from your reactions and reviews and uh, your own reception of what we say is, is very uh, uh, productive for somebody like me. Um, to say just a few words, I don't know how many of you have read uh, Fakir's paper. Do we know, how, have people read the paper at all or not? Yes. You can I've speak up, it. it's okay. I've I'm given it one reading, yes. Sidi, okay. there are many who have read the book. I, I suggested to people, several people who are involved um, in, well, who, who were good enough to reach out about our books when they came out. Yeah, and uh, uh, we kind of gathered a, together a bit of a circle around um, those people, and and so there are there are a core group of people who have read the book. There are okay. excellent, um, but they also last time I I asked people on the group if they'd be able to read the first section of your book. So right, I, I don't okay. know how many people have been able to do it, that. It's good to know, just so that. Uh, to what extent one can introduce some of the ideas behind it. Um, well, if you read from the introduction and the preface, then that gives you a certain idea of why this project seemed to us to be a pertinent one. Um, generally speaking, as Sheikh Hassan has repeatedly, I suspect, emphasized, 
we are faced with a, a great dilemma today in the intellectual sciences that we see around us. We have still the transmission of the intellectual sciences. This is going on around the world. Alhamdulillah wa What we have found difficulty in, uh, especially in Taba, in engaging with uh, people of the Turath and the scholars and so on, which have benefited us. But we found a particular problem in the rising generation. Uh, uh, it's not so much a problem as perhaps a, a lack of connectivity. Uh, and that is that uh, you can have itqan of a text in a particular science uh, or many texts. But the problem had always arisen of how do you actually apply the principles elicited from that text? So somebody who studies kalam can recite to you uh, what the mutakallimun say in this book, A and B and C and, and D, and tell you the history of the positions that are held within that tradition. But when it comes to actually applying those particular principles in the contemporary world, there seems to be a lack of connectivity, the lack of connection, um, a mis, sort of an underestimation of what the capacity of those ideas can do. Um, and what we find quite often uh, within the context that we're in, uh, it's the kind of fourth type of neo-modernism that arises. So if we look at modernism that we face today, we have the first, which is the, um, the kind of simplistic anti-intellectual uh, modernism that arises from the uh, teachings of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab in the late 18th century. It's derivative, um, always there at the heart of Islam in one sense, uh, from a particular very narrow perspective of neo-Hanbali fiqh, but it's still, it's still something that arises in the 18th century and it's anti-intellectual. Uh, divine transcendence is the last word. Um, you know, this sort of leads to uh, a sort of um, heightened type of piety that accords almost with a kind of uh, agnosticism that arises from it, which is a, a strange phenomena. The second type of modernism we can say is that which comes from being overwhelmed by a knowledge of the achievements of modernity, the industrial revolution, re-European technocracy, technocratic mindset, and at the same time, underwhelmed by a Muslim response um, in the social technical paradigm that we have. Uh, this modernism wants to retain Islamic identity, uh, but there is a kind of desire to Islamicize Western achievements. Um, and we saw all this uh, in the 20s and 30s and 40s. There's a kind of superficial process of absorption, very facile. Um, Western forms are considered in a very nominalist kind of framework um, and notion of the essences of forms and things were considered to be irrelevant. You know, uh, um, the Islamicization that we saw um, also is separative. It separates the theoretical from the practical. We find that uh, uh, very much in, in the thinking process. And this leads eventually to a secularism, relativism, and so on, because the product is, is unsatisfactory. And then you've got the third type of modernism, which is more, more of a degree from the second, which is basically uh, we want the world of the West. Um, and we want those achievements. And we just want to put them in 
to our particular paradigms. Uh, and this is, the, this is the kind of paradigm that seeks to reform the entire religion uh, and to accord with the contemporary world. It's non-apologetic. Uh, it, it sees the world as a process that needs to be conformed to. Now we have the age of the fourth type of modernism, I contend. And this fourth type of modernism is, comes from within the ranks of the guardians of the tradition. And it's essentially to keep what the right hand does away from what the left hand delivers. And it's particularly involved in the intellectual sciences, which is to diminish the metaphysical prowess of our intellectual world, uh, but in the name of tradition, in the name of a... Um, an anchoring and transmission uh, in the name of, so the words that are used, the, the, the epithets that are used are those of the mawruth, but actually the ma'na, the ma'ani are very, very different. And the understanding is very different. And I think this is much more corrosive naturally than any of the other modernisms because it comes from within. So we find certain ideas are gaining currency, things like the theory of evolution, uh, things like, which are argued on very rational lines. And remember, our tradition was never rationalized in that sense. We always had an interconnectivity between the cosmological and the metaphysical. And so we never had these issues. Um, this, again, is something that, that is very prominent today. Uh, and I think this is where uh, we have a corrective role by going back to the Torah, we have, an, uh, we have a capacity to do some corrective uh, uh, action to try and see whether this vast unity of our tradition has an answer for the problems that face us. We believe, we contend uh, in Taba, that tajdeed is not a tajdeed of the Torah. It's a tajdeed of our perception of it, our receptivity of it our tajreed personally before it. And this necessarily invokes a kind of theoretical psychology, but a psychology wedded to ontology. We believe that all philosophy, um, all expressions of metaphysics to a certain extent is an articulation of reality. Um, that's to say a language by which we articulate reality, but not reality itself. Um, and that's why for us perception, or I would say correct, more correctly, a vision of reality comes first, prior to the articulation by way of reason and language as a consequence. And that's why our metaphysics is rooted in shahud, not in reason. That's the starting point. There's nothing therefore new that we bring. There's nothing here but merely a repetition, or I would say a re-emphasis, a reiteration of the truth of things in metaphysical terms. And the foundation metaphysics, therefore, is our starting point because we believe it anchors the whole. Um, those are the kind of brief summary of where our position is prior to starting the, the project. The second thing, or the second category of things that I wanted to emphasize is that the teaching process within the intellectual sciences 
the higher intellectual sciences is not a madrasa topic. It's what the Iranians might call the dars kharaj type of material that is done. It's done in the houses of the mashayikh. It's done in private residences. It is something that is transmitted outside of the generality of the madaris. That's really important to, to understand because when it comes for some form of revification of transmission of this material, we have to think very, very carefully about the techniques that are used for the dissemination of this knowledge. The, the classroom is not really the place for this to take place. And I should add, neither is the university, because it requires an intimacy. It requires a ta'adib, and it requires a refinement of character that is only determined by the presence, the actual presence of a teacher and a student sitting before each other and taking from each other. And so the transmission process we aver is as important as what is being transmitted. And that's a really important point because some of the, uh, in the last, as we know from, for example, in the Azhar, uh, the classroom in the 20s and 30s begins to take over. The building of new buildings around the Azhar al-Sharif, where you end up having classroom uh, uh, scenarios where the teacher and the blackboard and, and so on and so forth. And although the, some of the teachings may have changed, some of the teaching may not have changed, uh, there, is a, there is a misunderstanding of what is the connection between the transmission process itself and the substance of what is being transmitted. That's something that we think is critical to gauge and to understand uh, its importance and its effect in the actual understanding of the topics that are being transmitted. So this is a kind of small tour d'horizon of uh, where we were at before we began. When Habib Ali asked us to begin this project, um, it really turned around uh, coming across many of the teachers that we met or the students of Ilm, Tullab al-Ilm and so on is that they didn't seem to have a panoramic view of the intellectual sciences. Of course, this exists, but uh, amongst the teachers, the, the grand teachers and, and the students that are well, well endowed by uh, intellectually by their uh, lineage. But on the whole, there was a, a misunderstanding of the interconnectivity of things. Prior to in the classical ages, let's say the 13th century, 14th century, 15th century of uh, the development of logic and kalam and the intellectual sciences as a whole, you tend to find that the ulama involved in it are panoramic in their interests. It's almost impossible to gauge how, um, uh, you know, the, the, the notion of polymath really can be, can be derived and defined by their example. You know, Shamsuddin al-Fanari is a metaphysician, he's a microbiologist, etc., etc. So they seem to have this understanding of, of being able to glide from one science to the other. And it's not done superficially. Um, it is not from on high. There seems that there is a, truly a panoramic, but they seem to have the capacity to pronounce from great heights and enter into particularities in juz'iyat on many, many of the ulum. And this always struck me as, how is it possible for somebody to gain that? How is it possible to have all these alum, somebody like Imam al-Nawawi and many, many others? How is it possible for them to have so much of this knowledge? 
because if you work it out, it would take 80, 90 years for somebody to have uh, ibqan of the various ulum, and yet they're able to achieve it at a very young age. It's almost as if the sciences are able to descend upon them. And this struck me as very, very interesting. Uh, and so re when, when reading Suharawardi and others, you discover that they refer to the notions of having keys. And Sheikh Al-Akbar talks about having a key to, to unlock these sciences. And one of the, one of the things that one come across, comes across is this, uh, this capacity to be able to swim within the grid of sciences, to be able to know where things fit in. And so this led us first to look at the classification of the sciences as a model, which everybody learns. It's very basic. Everybody uh, understands at the beginning of any text that one reads, any matter, and so on, it's referred to in some manner or other. But then to what extent is it operative or effective if one tries to understand how things come together? Because at the end of the day, uh, knowing the place of every science uh, can give you a gauge of what the effect of that science are, it is. And so people who become specialized in one science, I found, tend to see everything from within the scope of that science. And it becomes very problematic to be able to move on to other topics. And you find that people who spend very, a very long time in specialized, you've always had specialists, obviously, in various other... But they, they were never um, what the Germans call fact idiots. You know, you know they're, they're not stuck with one thing. You know, that if they're a hammer, the world is a nail. They didn't have this kind of problem. They were able to be uh, um, uh, supple and, and, uh, and move and understand how things relate, how knowledge relates to particular uh, principles and so on. And this, this was something that was very exciting to discover. And so we decided to look into the classification of sciences as a grid for, uh, as a teaching tool as well, which is when we are faced with a knowledge, the first step always is to relate it back to uh, the particular mas'ala that it deals with and relate that mas'ala back to uh, the sciences from which it comes or the particular science that it comes from, and thus be able to understand what the principles in place are and at the same time, what the possibilities of the Barahin are. That's a very kind of Aristotelian view of things. Uh, the Ahl al-Qawm or Tasawwuf, they also have uh, a ta'wil on that, which is more interesting. And I think this is what we were led into, which is the, the, the starting point, the foundation, is that classification process that Dinsina uh, talks about, but the manner in which it is uh, affected and understood and uh, promoted uh, is becomes much more interesting in the later sciences, especially when it comes to uh, the role of the wahiyain in the evolving of the not evolve is a bad word, but in the in the unfurling of the sciences, and also the relationship between the haqiqa muhammadiya and the ulum as a whole, because if every knowledge is a is an aspect of the study of reality, uh, and therefore we can see how that uh, um, unfurls by understanding the Hafiq al-Muhammadi and its role in relation to all forms of knowledge. So, and the idea of becoming close to God through knowledge, etc., etc. So this is a kind of very general conversational, um, uh, you know, preface to what led us 
to start this project. Um, the second or the fifth element I just want to briefly mention is why those topics that we chose. Very simply, in an age of uh, obsession with analytic philosophy um, and uh, Heidegger and everything else in between, which we, we generally hold to be an impoverished, anemic form of philosophy, uh, if philosophy at all, um, we thought we'd start at the beginning, which is what grounds everything. Um, and when we deal with logic, uh, if we follow the notion of the classification that we put forward as the classical one that we find at the, uh, at the, uh, at the heart of our system, knowledge system, then we understand that metaphysics rules the roost. And so we have to start with the fundamental basis uh, of the sciences, which are the metaphysical principles at the heart of our, our, of our framework. And so that naturally led us to the first paper, uh, which is, well, what if we take one of the aspects of that? And the idea is not to be comprehensive. The idea is to be concise and to try and show the operativeness of a first principle. What does that mean? Where does it come from? How do we verify it to a certain extent? Um, and to, this is a big topic, obviously, and it's a huge topic, but uh, one scintilla of the effects of this is what was attempted in the first paper. Um, if we have our starting point, then we need the other starting point uh, uh, in logic, which is how do we begin the process through definition? And that's why the second paper was brought in, which is if definition fails, then we have lost the soul. And if we've lost the soul, we've lost all possibility of prosthetic and we've lost all possibility of judgment and therefore there is no knowledge. So we had to go back and buttress the notion of definition uh, and what that means. Much of the pollution, mental pollution that takes place in understanding a lot of these categories, even in Tullab Alam we found, is that they are not immune from the widespread effects of modern contentions and philosophies, even though they may have never read them. And this is a very curious process um, that you find. Uh, there is some there's some uh, currency to ideas that the built environment, the technologically imbued built environment, which is alien to our cosmological understanding of nature and the natural world, which is, you know, everywhere in the Arab and Middle East and Islamic world, has a role to play in changing people's perceptions and psychological dispositions to things. And we strongly believe in, for example, the science of architecture, that every form bespeaks a ma'na, a meaning. And the forms of architecture that are modern project meanings into people's psychologies subtly. Um, and this is much of this takes place which may explain why people have a particular perception of things uh, or uh, pursue certain lines of understanding which have nothing to, which may have never been read you know people who espouse hegelian tendencies that they've never read hegel 
or they they're very Marxian some of their uh, utterances but they've never read Marx either so this was a curious thing but um, one of the uh, things we found is that how do we ground uh, the notion of logic uh, uh, you know in its starting points and so so tasawur as I said uh, begins with definition as the haditam, uh, with the haditam, and so we 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 thought we'd look at definition, and that's what Sidi Mustafa is looking at specifically. And then the third paper, which you are studying in depth with Sidi Hassan, is uh, as he explained, is essentially how do we ground objectivity, and that's why the three go together. The first paper tries to do the business uh, well an attempt anyway i'm not going to pretend but it's an attempt to do the business of metaphysical thinking about a first principle and what can it do and how does it relate but the essence of the paper if i go back to the focus paper only the essence of it is to how is logic grounded in metaphysics what is the relationship between logic and metaphysics and if logic is grounded in metaphysics, then what is the relationship between reality and thought? Uh, and how do we calibrate that and understand that, especially in regards to the threats, purported threats, although they're not really, of paraconsistency, which has now become de rigueur, even some Muslims are talking about it uh, in, serious, uh, in a serious tone, which is unfortunate. And how do we... Um, how do we understand uh, the? Uh, how do we understand the framework of our mental world in relation to what we define as reality? So this kind of calibration between the two is at the heart of this paper, um, and that was the attempt to uh, speak about the principle of non-contradiction as the basis of that. Um, in its logical form, but also with a view to its metaphysical import. Uh, and at the end of the paper uh, is uh, the attempt to look at two possibilities that are faced today, where people situate the principle of non-contradiction as being irrelevant. First being with uh, Vasiliev and um, imaginary logic, and the second being with uh, enthusiast enthusiasts who proclaim that the Sufis or people like Sheikh al-Akbar uh, uh, when they talk about things being beyond the realm of rational explication they are essentially uh, uh, dispensing with logic dispensing in the sense that it becomes um, it becomes uh, inoperative but in a manner that means that it is relative in its import and its effects and what I try to show is that um, it just it's not relevant to the particular discourse in the same way as with future contingencies if uh, nothing has happened there's no distinction then you can't have the principle in operation but there is but there are many levels of the principle acting and again this is the the idea that whatever we find in logic has a referent outside of logic uh, if we believe again in the interconnectivity of the world because there's no split in reality then there is a portion of cosmological uh, reference to the things that we speak about. And that's why when we talk about philosophy, 
or we talk about metaphysical uh, principles or perceptions, then we always have to keep in mind that there is a cosmological implication at work. Um, and this helps us to relate the dry kind of discussion of specialized discourse and reason and philosophy and so on uh, to something that is visually attainable, something that is perceptible to every human being. Um, and that helps us also to be able to transmit the importance of metaphysics, not merely as a specialized uh, topic, but also as something that has actual effect to the quotidian uh, existence. You know, how we live our, our lives is relevant to what metaphysics we subscribe to, because there's no metaphysical neutrality. We all subscribe to a kind of metaphysic, but is it true and is it anchored? And that's the whole point. Uh, that's really all I wanted to say as the Hassan as a very brief impromptu discussion or uh, thought about how we started the project. Um, we could get into some other aspects, but I'd really be led by you. I don't want to lecture. I'm not a lecturer and I'm not a teacher, so I don't really want to sit and lecture to all these uh, squares uh, of people that I can't see any faces. It's a bit disconcerting. But, um, <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, one of the big I can see more people now. I've seen Muhammad Sami and others. They've all duly turned on the cameras. That's very kind of you, everyone. But that's good. Nobody's left yet, so that's excellent. We all do the same thing in Zoom. I'm the first person to admit that. Um, I just want to um, read now a little bit from the Sheikh's book. I don't know if everyone has a copy or if some of you have a copy there. It is, of course, available online uh, for free, so you can download it um, from the web internet. And um, if you could all go to page one, I think we'll read a little bit of the introduction that will just shed light a bit on what the Sheikh's just been through. Um, and uh, and then I, I'll, I'd hope that Sidi will, um, will offer some comments then. So <clears throat> we have page one open. Um, is this some um, preface to the series or are we doing the- No, this uh, is, this oh, is not the, the XIs, but at the yeah. actual page one, with yeah. your permission, Sidi. Yeah, in the name of God, the merciful, the beneficent, the anatomy of knowledge and the ontological necessity of first principles. This paper intends to examine the relationship between the order of knowledge and its principles and the justification for such an order. The intention is to take one aspect of this epistemic structure as expressed in Avicennan and post-Avicennan thought, namely the first principle of non-contradiction in order to examine its priority and primacy. The context of the paper is to rebut the contemporary dissipation of the notion of the hierarchy of the sciences, leading some to think that traditional methodologies of transmission are outdated and based on customary practices alone that enshrine social and thought control 
on behalf of a particular caste. Contrary to this, we contend that the order of knowledge is reflective of the order of being by way of intellectual and ontological necessity and not due to any imposed system from without. This imposes though from within a transmission process that determines the prerequisites for the study of the sciences. It has been a literary custom of the last hundred years or so for traditionalist writers to preface their purported corrective treatises or essays with the declaration that such work is disseminated in the hope of rectifying the cognitive errors of an age mired in intellectual and moral confusion. The implication being that once the errors were understood or highlighted, it was optimistically held that an intellectual reassessment might then be undertaken by a bona fide reader, or that at the very least, former positions might be interrogated. The problem, however, may not lie simply in the supine demeanor of the reader and their sultry passiv passivity. There has also and very often been a recognizable deficit in historical orientation in such studies in relation to contemporary approaches to modern ideas assailing the Muslim world. Without an element of historical sophistication, there is an undeniable tendency to distort intellectual perspectives on the present, a mistaking of old facts and old theories for new leading ultimately and perhaps inevitably to an inability to evaluate the significance of new movements and methodologies. We aver that the history of an idea and its philosophical foundations and antecedent forms is a significant part of the cognitive structure that permits us to understand the questions or masail of a science, an understanding that remains incomplete if it relies merely on an existential study of those questions. It is noticeable that the Islamic world's traditional cognitive systems have further deteriorated to a very extent, great extent in the last two decades. So that it may be said that the nefarious force arraigned before traditional thought amounts to intellectual sedition rather than mere intellectual error. By sedition is meant an active incitement on the part of a not insignificant minority to foment intellectual rebellion and disorder against and within the guardians and defenders of traditional religious authority and knowledge. The distinction between error and sedition is important because it implies that the rejection of traditional thought or traditional foundationalism by contemporary antagonists primarily is a psychological imposture rather than an intellectual deviation. Such a rejection is largely made not because such respective thought is false, but rather because it is falsely known. Epistemologically speaking, the accession to human knowledge is also a psychological operation and therefore studied under epistemology. That is to say, incorporating the study of the vegetative, sensitive and intellectual operations and faculties. Rejecting metaphysics or the science of first principles as contemporary modern thought tends to do in the name of a suspect skepticism has long been the result of a psychological inclination rather than any misspent search for demonstrative and objective truth. It is itself incidentally a metaphysical act and can never be considered metaphysically neutral. Good faith can go a long way in the preparation of minds 
so that, so that one could even say that it is possible for an ignorant man to be a virtuous man. But it does not then follow that ignorance can ever amount to a virtue. The uncritical adoption of neo-positivist natural sciences and their attendant philosophical outlooks in the present context of the Islamic world is symptomatic of a universal tendency that has spread irrespective of creed, belief, or theological affiliation. By reiterating the importance of psychological disposition, there is no intention to give further credibility to the intellectually unsound tenets of modern psychology. We are not suggesting that the laws of logic are furnished by psychology, rather that they are objective laws that impose themselves on us and therefore also on our psychology. Their acceptance thus, subjectively speaking, is dependent to a certain significant extent on personal disposition, but their validity, objectively speaking, can never be. It is this that separates our perspective from that of modern proponents of psychologism and logic. In terms of analyzing a proposition, to take a more concrete example, its psychological treatment is distinguished from the logical as the latter can only subject it to an analysis if it possesses the traits of necessity and universal validity. Acts and beliefs in the traditional order are always posited on an intelligible and logical order that underpins them and are capable of being understood and analyzed, even if the act in question may prima facie appear illogical and unconscious. By psycho psychological disposition, rather, we necessarily also infer a moral valuation, as there is an essential relation between thought and action, and consequently between intellection and morality. The moral or immoral act has a direct effect on the human powers of intellection and vice versa. To think as one pleases, rather than to think correctly, may be an intellectual error, but we further contend must also be necessarily a moral imposture as it prioritizes caprice before intellect. In this context, one could be excused for thinking the signature of the modern age to be characterized as a noisy clamor for liberty for the many merely in order to secure license for the few. And with your permission, I'm just going to stop there because I, uh, for the first reading, because I really wanted to highlight and bring this up as a discussion point, what I think is a very valuable contribution um, of City Creams, uh, which I, I keep on coming back to again and again and enormously clarified matters for me and I know for many other people, which is this question of psychological disposition. And, and I think just to take, well, concrete examples, not to identify them, because I don't think we can do that, but um, concrete examples of this are very, very widespread. Um, a very common argument that you will hear is well, traditional metaphysics, traditional foundationalism, foundationalism is obsolete and can't really be taken seriously today. And then why? Oh, well, because most people won't accept it. And because prominent thinkers of today have dismissed it. And of course, the the question of psychological disposition, the fact that 
there can be a whole host of factors barring a person's ability to accept the truth, to see the truth, to receive indeed the truth, is something which is often ignored. Someone can even be a philosopher trained to the very highest level and by an act of will simply refuse to accept first principles. And so it's important to factor in some of these other factors which are present irreducibly because of the nature of the human composite really and the human and the apparatus of human cognition um, in any act of knowing. As Sidi Karim continues to say throughout the book, very often and inescapably of course, the same people rejecting the principle of non-contradiction and other of these first principles are constantly invoking them in order to make their argument. And um, so that's just one, one point I, I wanted to flag there in case um, Sadhana has anything to say about it or, or anyone else. Siddhi Sachi, did you have something? Um, a lot, lots of things to say, but I'll, I'll leave it up to others to kind of start the things uh, first. Uh, this is just a quote from uh, uh, Plato uh, about uh, what a sophist is. Uh, uh, <laughs> we're, kind of talking, we're, we're kind of talking about a sophist here. Uh, Mashallah. Mashallah, yeah. Beautiful, that's very good. Um, Sidi M.U., could you uh, direct your question to Sidi Kareem, please? Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Uh, sorry, Shaykh, this is Uzair. Wa alaikum assalam. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask, um, where... Is that Uzair? Yeah, that's... that's sorry. Oh, Habibi. Oh, sorry. Um, may I please ask, uh, where did this psychological disposition arise from? So what are its roots? If you'd care to elaborate, please. The, the psychology is a faculty uh, you know we're, we're talking about the soul and effects of the soul um, and in dispositions of psychology are related to our spiritual states uh, generally and uh, related to our refinement as characters uh, our notion of uh, if you want to look at it uh, our opening to waham of some kind or another uh, especially the strong people with strong waham that we find around us today. You know, formerly it used to be people with strong waham, as Ibn Sina used to say, they had thaumaturgic capacities. They can actually heal you. That's how the doctor healed you. He would come and sit next to you, and because of his waham, he's able to transmit that waham of health towards you in the same way as you feel confident when you're with very strong people. Uh, there's a confidence that uh, transmits itself to you. Um, so, Waham can be very powerful. I, if you want to ask where this psychological disposition of rejection comes or, or malefic almost capacities, well, it's to do with khawatir. And we know khawatir have two aspects, and the mu'tadil, the, the person who has arrived at certain levels of tajreed, is able to distinguish between the two and able to follow the ones uh, that are beneficial to him and his knowledge. Uh, but generally speaking, I think the, the, 
dispositions, uh, there seems to be a reluctance to understand that you cannot espouse a doctrine and believe in a particular kind of revelation and ignore the effects of surrounding yourself with the negation of that revelation and the negation of that belief and the negation of those principles that uh, rule your life as far as you're concerned. And I think that the built environment that we surround ourselves with is contrary principially to everything that we believe in. Uh, um, and that's why there is, uh, with the classification of the sciences, there is an attempt to show that it all goes together. Everything flows together. There is a knock-on effect for eliminating the principial approach in certain sciences uh, and thinking that it's not going to affect us in any way. It's all a package. So the notion of the built environment is extremely important. It is the it is the 24-7 philosophy that we imbibe as soon as we step outside of our door. And that's why beauty, uh, these things, you never hear people talk about this anymore, but the notion of beauty is extremely important. And beauty is comes from taste, and taste is a spiritual quality. It is not something that uh, is motivated by your likes and dislikes. This kind of emotional attachment to aesthetics uh, comes, as you know, from Baumgarten, Leibniz, a student. But aesthetics comes from a spiritual uh, uh, capacity to, to know form and order and proportion. These are all spiritual qualities. Uh, these, these require a spiritual quality to be able to determine. And that's why our artists and our architects and our town planners were people of spiritual aptitudes. They were not technicians. So I think the psychological disposition has a lot to do with what we eat, what we surround ourselves with, the aurf the, the of our daily life, which is not dictated by our tradition, and this kind of pollutive capacity uh, being distant from nature, not being close to the earth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are really problematic and they begin to affect people's lives. Uh, if we lose, it used to be that uh, in Egypt, for example, they used to say, we've lost our cities, but we retain our mosques. The mosque is going to be the bastion which we hold on to as the representative of traditional form. Well, we've lost the mosque now. And we have these monstrosities, monstrosities that are built uh, and we call them Islamic. They're not Islamic. They are places of worship, but they are not Islamic in terms of principal forms. So this is a science that has lost its currency. And uh, it, although it, it directs our dispositions on a daily light, on a daily, uh, in a daily way, we have surrendered it as being something unimportant for you know, uh, our daughters to get involved with because they're bored and waiting to get married, they go and learn a bit of art and so on. Or people who are business-minded and don't quite understand that everything they touch on this earth has a direct impact on uh, people's lives and people's thoughts and ideas. So uh, even surreptitiously, without people knowing, there are many, many studies about the impact and effect of modern architecture on people. Uh, this is a known science. Uh, uh, it's largely been studied through behaviorism, behavioral psychology in the United States in the 1950s and 60s. 
but it, it came to prominence also uh, in uh, with Le Corbusier's building buildings in India and, and elsewhere in the, the general modernist movement. Um, this has all been swept under the carpet. We are the most modernized societies on earth today, the Middle East. We pertain to intellectual principles and religious principles that are solid, but we live our lives as highly modernized people. And that this disassociationism that is created by this, I think, is responsible for having to you know the madman is somebody who uh cannot relate uh reality to what he thinks there's a kind of disassociationism and so either he gives in to uh, to the reality or he tries or he goes mad trying to uh bring the two together although they cannot come together and so on we are in this process of disassociationism where we're trying to, like Cinderella's aunt, trying to fit the shoe of modernity onto our traditional foot, and it won't fit. Um, so something's got to give. We're going to have to pretend that it fits and try and do surgery on the foot or, you know, something else. So I think that's where, that's my two pennies worth on psychological dispositions being aberrant uh, everywhere we look. Thank you very much, Sidi, for those very stimulating comments. Um, I'm just going to go on now um, on page three now. We're in at the middle of the page. One of the many significant and malefic acts. One of the many significant and malefic acts of early modern philosophy, one that can be said to animate and inform contemporary thought as a whole, was the denial of the passivity of the human intellect. Immanuel Kant, especially although not exclusively, advanced this in pursuit of the ideology of the freedom of thought, an ideology that believed that the mind must think itself as independent and self-sufficient in its creative powers. Kant essentially operated a secret axiom Kant essentially operated a secret axiom, namely that we can only know what we ourselves construct. Subjection to truth, however, according to traditional metaphysics, demands a passivity of mind, illustrating that the intellect is not then free to think what it pleases, but only free to think the truth. This is not to deny that the intellect does not act. As it clearly does. But it cannot act <clears throat> unless it has itself been acted upon. This is important because it touches upon the most basic epistemological question, namely whether the mind is able to think before it has been given something to think about. Can the intellect in those circumstances think at all? The answer should be determinedly clear, as only the divine intellect can be independently creative and active. The human intellect, consequently, is not free to think what it pleases. By moral, we also mean a spiritual concomitant rather than merely an ethical standard. For in the traditional order, the ethical is never detached from spiritual composure. 
adab, unlike superficial piety, is at the core of the learning process as attested by numerous treatises and the continuity of the traditional culture of learning in the madrasa system. What Al-Ghazali and others referred to as tahdib al-akhlaq, the refinement of character, is deemed by someone like Qutbuddin al-Shirazi to be a necessary prerequisite for the study of logic. He states, for example, in the opening remarks of his commentary on Hikmat al-Ishraq, that those who do not refine their character and purify their dispositions before undertaking the study of logic have launched themselves on the course of miscreants and are engaged on the path of the ignorant. These sentiments are by no means an anomaly, but rather repeated throughout Ishraqi texts as well as those texts following the Akbarian, Akbarian school, namely that the epistemic act demands a spiritual prerequisite. One can say that there are ultimately two systems of thought or philosophy. One can say that there are ultimately two systems of thought or philosophy. Those that find reality ultimately meaningful and intelligible and those that do not. Traditional Islamic thought belongs to the former, as it adheres in its creed to the intelligibility of reality, and if intelligible, then capable of being known. This acceptance of intelligibility presumes common presuppositions in the order of knowledge, as the common form of metaphysics in the Islamic intellectual tradition underpins such an order. The division of the sciences and the necessary consequence of a hierarchical interconnectedness between, interconnectedness between them necessarily underwrite this. This matter will therefore be examined first. And then it goes on to a very important introduction to some of the history there. But I thought two things I wanted to highlight here, and please, everyone else feel free to to shout out, um, but the two things, one of them is I think absolutely fascinating and I fully agree with my, unsurprisingly with my teacher here, Siddi Cream, about Kant's secret axiom, um, namely that we only know what we ourselves construct being utterly crucial to understanding our present difficulties. And then subjection to truth, according to, to traditional metaphysics, demands a passivity of mind. I think this is also a very, very key question. If, if there is a split in reality and you're not, we are not continuous with reality, then yes, any content of thought will be an act. It will be a creative activity which imposes itself upon the world. And then the second element, which I think is extremely important here, is the notion that the epistemic act demands a spiritual prerequisite. And this is something that you'll find throughout City Cream's classification of uh, classification project which is that we have all ended up 
establishing this principle as something very, very fundamental to our point of view. So I just wanted to highlight those two issues, of course. Welcome to Tvadal City Asa. You don't have to, you're more than welcome to not talk about those at all, please. I should say I don't I don't know how to work the chat thing, so I'm I'm a bit um, I'm a bit of a technological idiot. So please, hashtag, hashtag. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of the questions. chat. Oh, okay. I'll take yeah, care I'll, of the chat. I'll for figure me. out how to. We've got a hand up from Sidi Molana. I'm trying to do the Adara for you, Habibi. So take I'm it on my hand. Uh, Molana Isa, are we here? So Ustaz, he said that he's in a library and can't speak. Oh, he's in a library. Can let's read the chat. This is from Sidi Asa Saad, who we used to have with us in Cambridge, unfortunately thought it necessary to defect to the other place, but I still decided to invite him to the, um, he says, apologies, I had a question, thank you, apologies, I had a question which pertained to the previous discussion, feel free to disregard, oh. Right. Following on from Uzair's question, is the reality of inhospitable psychological dispositions the reason for Sidi Karim's earlier point that the metaphysical worldview cannot be transmitted through the classroom and university, but rather must find other vehicles? I would be very, very interested to hear his thoughts on what these vehicles might look like in today's world. Is it a question of revitalizing traditional pedagogies, art forms? Fadalia Molana. Yeah, I mean, that's my, uh, that was my contention, which is, um, you know, our way of life is a way of knowledge. So even before Pierre Hado even thought of it, you know, this is how we operate in, in our societies. And so um, uh, art or uh, the crafts, the building crafts or things of this sort, any kind of activity really, which is human and, inter and, and intentional and traditional and so on, are treasure houses of knowledge and uh, the intellectual so-called rational exposition of knowledge as taught in the universal uh, educational models which started in the late 19th century are really an artificial technocratic invasion into the world of knowledge and it serves a very particular purpose, which is social engineering to produce a capitalist class that can uh, then uh, operate the modern state. Um, we don't naturally have that view, despite the intrusion of statism into our world in the Middle East after the First World War. We don't have that mentality, and, and it's uh, we are vocational people. We operate on the basis that everything is a form of knowledge that wherever you find yourself in society, whatever level of class and so on, there is an opportunity, a spiritual opportunity open to you because of the way that you work or operate and so on. So, uh, for example, the water carrier uh, uh, in Islamic society who is really at the bottom of the pile, you will find that they have a guild and in that guild they proclaim that uh, Sayyidina Jibril is in their silsila because he was the first water carrier and it is a pathway to the knowledge of God 
to serve people water is a way of gaining true knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by the practice of the deen within that form and vehicle. So however lowly things were, if they retained a, an initiatory basis, if they retained a hierarchy premised on cosmological uh, realism, if they re retained a, um, a vehicle for spiritual ta'adib, then these were an opportunity um, and uh, for knowledge. So there wasn't this kind of divide that we find today. Now everybody wants to be in an office uh, wearing a suit or in academic being taken seriously for his uh, um, you know, intellectual elucidations in the classroom. It's a very different world that operated. So we don't, have, uh, we don't have the elitism of modernity. Modernism is the most elitist uh, uh, transitional form we've ever had in the world. Uh, and it's, it bespeaks a kind of, well, it speaks in the name of an equality of opportunity, but it isn't. It's very elitist. It demands that you abide by a certain technocratic mindset. Uh, it, it demands that you abide by certain diktats. And the, the, uh, the manufacturing basis of the crafts in a traditional Islamic society freed you from that. You were free from systems because you were responsible for the production. We were a people of producers. We were producers primarily. And being a producer, as you know, is the greatest enemy of the capitalist system because you are able to create and we do not want people of creativity and freedom we want people who are subsumed to systemic frameworks that serve uh, uh, an economic interest but it damages our dispositions so something very important truth uh, we talk about this often see the hassan i but truth has to be seen it's not something that is thought. It has to be seen. There is a visual element to it. And art or manufacturing with one's hands is one of those uh, great paths for seeing truth. Uh, and this is very, very important. And that's how the crafts were taught and still are to some extent in some places. They are taught as vehicles for the vision of truth. And this is where the tajrid of the nafs comes in contact with the whole body you know ibn sina used to talk about the philosophy of craft as being the capacity to still the voice of waham in one's soul by the monotony of craft because a lot of crafts were very monotonous and this stillness of that waham that incessant voice in the soul that continues with its discourse that one has to still Craft is one of those manner in which you can still it in order to help the soul to, to transcend various states. Uh, and it's a very important part of our world that we've lost, unfortunately. We don't have that. We're not, we don't see this as important. And the transmission process, very often when you look at the, the awliya or the ulama and so on, they always had a craft, always always had a craft and i made a list actually once of all the great uh, uh of our ummah what actually that i was always interested what did they do it's all very well to think uh these amazing things and write these amazing books but what did they actually do and you you always find they weren't just scholars sitting in a room which is amazing because how did they have time you know they always had a craft they always did something with their hands and it helped them to root 
their knowledge is and it helped them to root themselves in society amongst the people and at the same time to root their knowledge in the work that they did and this imbued an amazing amount of clarity in the people around them thank you very much that answers but it's kind of do respond by all means i don't um i don't want to just say He's responding, apparently there is a saying in Jewish tradition that scholars who do not take up a craft to support themselves risk becoming knaves. Thank you so much for that, he says. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Wonderful. One of the wonderful things about Sidi Karim's thought, I, I find, uh, and I find it a glaring thing because it shows up one of my own deficiencies, is that he is able to relate metaphysics to all of the different levels of not only discourse but also experience for him metaphysics is not divorced from the level of craft from the level of everyday activity and of course in terms of the symbolic correspondences and resonances of these different levels of reality there is also a way in which this can be understood philosophically and the, the inner rationale of that can be shown philosophically but um he went well this is something yeah. yeah this is something that's coming i think which is we talked about which is uh, you know the language of symbol is really the language of metaphysics it's where language uh, becomes impoverished in trying to articulate realities which it cannot sustain it can't sustain the wasn the weight of haqaiq in being displayed and hence the recourse to uh, the quran or the hadith and so on and that's what sheikh al-akbar does it's, it's a massive commentary on the quran and uh, uh, and the hadith but but um the language of symbol again is largely a visual one uh, not merely a, a question of um, uh, uh, the use of words and, and uh, um hermeneutics and so on like that but, you know it, it is actually visual um, in many ways but that's an interesting point I, I don't know if anybody has done some work on this and looked at this yeah um thank you very much for that uh he, i'll be in trouble after the session for saying this but city cream is also a um, really a master stone cover we've got something from professor ayaz kayani here we're very honored to have professor ayaz here he's something of a legend for me um, and uh, he's a professor of logic from Canada and Pakistan, and he's 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 commented, I believe, on the question of the passivity of the intellect, and the idea that the intellect is creating all of this. A surprising thing to me is that the assumption that human creativity is actually that potent and expansive in terms of the amplitude of what it can do. One rarely finds much skepticism about whether there is any reason to believe that the human mind can create so many connections and such coherence, etc. Wonderful. Uh, thank you, Sidi Yassin, for, for attending, and we hope to see you next time. Jazakallah khair. So we've got a question now from Sidi Satri. You go ahead, please, Sidi. Tfadal. Yeah, just uh, great to hear. Uh, great to hear from you again, uh, Sidi Karim. And uh, after so many years, and uh, good to hear your points. Uh, I always get so much out of them. <laughs> so oh, thank you. Very, uh, you've always been very generous. <laughs> uh, and it's my, more my, about my you. Just, no, 
uh, um, I wanted to ask you about the uh, point you made at the, the beginning of your uh, uh, comment uh, earlier uh, about agnosticism and uh, a certain group of people uh, going from uh, a very narrowly construed understanding of uh, um, tradition uh, into an agnosticism. Uh, could you just sort of say a bit more about what that means and how that how, how that is the case? Yeah, yeah I think... Um... You know, I was talking really about this nomocratic uh, kind of obsession, which is which, uh, is condemnatory in nature. Um, it escapes any kind of substantiality um, because of its sort of negatory identity, its inability to possibly, uh, you know, positively assert any distinct doctrine. You know, divine transcendence presented as the last word you know, uh, because God can do anything. Uh, and this practice paradoxically leads to agnosticism because the, nothing can be elicited. When you have this kind of uh, uh, God can do anything, then everything is possible. Uh, and there is a disconnect between the, uh, the creation of the world and uh, the laws that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has imprinted into the world in one sense because of the asma and so on, depending on how you look at it. And so with, with the Wahhabi, um, I shouldn't say Wahhabi, but the, those followers of Muhammad ibn al-Wahhab and those tendencies, it always leads to a form of agnosticism because you, you lift intelligibility from the world and it becomes merely divine, the, the playground of divine caprice. So it's an impoverishment of the world in the name of a very extreme form of transcendence. That's my kind of view of it, but I don't know if it's coherent sufficiently. Do you have any follow-ups, Siddhi Satchi? Uh, no, no, that makes sense. I just wanted to that clarify. Thank you so much. Do you agree with that? Or? Uh, yeah, totally. Uh, in fact, the... Um, um, I, there seems to be also a relation between that and the fourth type of modernism that you mentioned as well, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting as well. Yeah, I mean, they're all interrelated. They're, they're really one, uh, you know, yes, mo modernism is legion, but, but in one sense, they, it's, it's basically what you emphasize. Uh, we yeah, go right. from one emphasis to another, you know, as we move along the, the road of uh, chronological road, you know, we, we have different emphasis that are in play. Uh, this, I mean, René Guénon, who I, I do think is a great master, but René Guénon uh, talks about the notion of sedition. And I think this is something he always said, he always said the danger will come from within, not without. Um, and I think that's a really interesting development that has taken place more recently in a, in a more uh, in a more clearer sort of way you can actually put your finger on it much easier than before before it was kind of tendencies and things like that now all the gloves are off yeah Allahu alam thank you very much Sidi. Sidi mustafa could we have your question thank you very much Ustad, and thank you dr laham for this really illuminating and um, inspiring uh, discourse. So um, in my own personal experience, I've also uh, come to develop serious uh, grievances and 
a kind of cynicism about the pedagogical efficacy of the apparatus of the modern university. It's a technocratic, highly specialized, uh, bureaucratic nature uh, precludes um, the kind of intellectual and spiritual transformation that we aim for in our uh, understanding of the intellectual and ethical vocation of the human being. So one question that I wanted to ask you, and I, uh, um, this is a kind of personal question as well. It pertains to my own practical life, but I think not just to mine, I imagine many others in my situation. Uh, Muslims, young Muslims who are now studying in universities in, in the West, in these, in these technocratic establishments, um, studying the various sciences uh, in, in this atmosphere of extreme intellectual anarchy. There's no understanding of what the other principles guiding every science and people don't just uh, have uh, an understanding of the principal basis of their science, but they don't even feel the need for, for one. So in this situation, my intuition is that I feel like there is something deeply, um, there's some error and perhaps even some kind of moral problem with uh, continuing to participate in this in this academic uh, track and this establishment in the sense that there is a tendency to say, okay, well, this is the reality, the larger than myself reality. And um, this is the institutional setup and the educational apparatuses in the Muslim world aren't the best either. So, so I guess what I can just do is I can just basically enact my combat and encounter with modernity as an individual scholar. So whatever my field, Islamic studies, my this philosophy or somebody else is studying the arts or the legal social political history of, of, of Islam or whatever. So there is a tendency to think, okay, I'm an individual scholar and I will do my work and publish and, and, and that is sort of the way I will respond to, to, the, to the havoc, moral, intellectual havoc that modernity has wrought. So I think that that is not a, a substantial, uh, it's not an interesting possibility. The, the efficacy of this kind of response from an, from an academic is, is, I think, diminishing very quickly as time goes on. I think uh, I find great inspiration what you are doing, what Stadhasan Tao Foundation is doing by creating an institutional response, by, by getting together and, and, and um, responding to these, to these issues. So just the question really is, what do you think of this vocation, this individual monk-like scholarly paradigm of pursuing your own inquiry? Do you think this is a, a morally and intellectually acceptable way for the modern Muslim young ac academic to pursue his or her academic vocation? Or do you think they should explore other possibilities? Thank you very much. Um, that's quite a question. And really, it's beyond my pay grade. I mean, I'm not... I mean, who am I to pronounce on these things? I'm just, uh, you know, uh, it's not really, I mean, what I'm trying to, just to elucidate, I'm not saying people should leave the universities and go and, uh, you know, live in the middle of, you know, I mean, I, I think the question is to be informed is to be prepared, to become aware and conscious of the underlying uh, uh, specious character of academic life is really important. Um, and then there are things you know, there are ways of protecting our dispositions, there are ways of protecting ourselves. And this is what, what we mean by there being a spiritual concomitant to, uh, to studying, to understanding, to launching ourselves within a particular environment. There are things one can do. Uh, I don't believe that we should just 
disassociate ourselves necessarily from what we find ourselves in. Allah has put us in a particular situation, but we have to be conscious and aware of what those frailties that we have are because of the conditions that we're in. And then the next question is, well, how do we protect ourselves? You know, how do we uh, ensure that we are not lost at sea in this maelstrom that is surrounding us? And that's a very important point. There's good everywhere. There's good, there's good to, uh, you know, you, there's a lot of good in universities. There's good everywhere if you look for it. But what we have to do is we have to have a mentality where we are the great sifters of reality for truths. We sift like sifting in the sand on a beach for a coin or anything like this. That's the job is to sift. It's not we're not looking for perfections in the university systems. We look to, for perfections in our transmissions of the knowledges that we have in our tradition and to those people that can take us closest to those elements of perfection. Uh, that's that's our methodology. But um, we have to sift, and you can sift at Harvard, and you can sift in uh, East Jesus Technical University in Montana, or whatever it is. You can do it anywhere. The point is to become aware of the shortcomings and become aware of the effects that they may have upon you. Part of it is how you live your life, how you surround yourself, uh, in my opinion. Um, uh, you know, philosophy is an integral practice. It's not merely the rational. It, it, it is something that has an integrative capacity for the whole body, the whole soul, the whole, every, all your interests. So it's not just something that feeds the mind. And I think this is where academia falls short. The, the education is the education of the brain. That is a big problem. Because the brain is dependent on all sorts of other things as you know, in your own studies and in people who have been traditionally trained, you know, the mind is, is something that is not disassociated from all the other faculties and capacities. And in what sense is this being catered for in a positive way? Allahu alam. Thank you very much, Sidi. Um, we now have a question from Osama. I don't know if you'd be able to ask this in person, but if not, I can read it, Sidi. Um, I think you had your hand up and then you put it down, so I'll just read it. How would the idea that an epistemic act demands a spiritual prerequisite relate to, say, a non-Muslim's path to Islam, whose urf is void of any spirituality or symbolism? How would such a person achieve a path to, to or truth itself? And how would this relate to the universality of Islam? Yeah, that's quite a few questions in one, um, which, which have particular uh, things that one wants to answer. I mean, primarily, you know, not only Muslims attain to knowledge, obviously. Um, uh, people do attain to knowledge. You don't have to be a Muslim to have knowledge, uh, some kind of knowledge. We're talking about degrees of knowledge. Uh, we're not talking about knowledge per se. And uh, spiritual concomitance uh, and, and of, of one's state, for example, and knowing is a very important one. Muslims, um, trying to think how to start, there's so many points here, but generally speaking, there is knowledge 
and then there is realized knowledge you can know something uh in the sense that we can read i can somebody like me for example i read metaphysics but that which it speaks of i have not realized that's a different degree of knowledge so knowledge is one but it has differing degrees so can people outside of islam have knowledge yes um and it's got nothing to do with islam it's just the way that the human being has been created by allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his mercy so knowledge is there However, in order to realize knowledge, one has, and has to undertake a spiritual path based on a revelation. And we have that revelation, and we have that exemplar, Sallallahu Alaihi and we have our traditions, and this is our path. And that way we arrive at a realization of that knowledge. Metaphysics has to be realized primarily. It is not something that can be just rationally debated and talked about because it's an initiatic knowledge, requires a form of initiation. Um, and universality, well, what do you mean by universality? You know, um, we talk about unity of knowledge, but universality, that's what the Renaissance brought us. It destroyed unity and brought us universality instead, which doesn't work. Uh, but that's a different, um, that's a different discussion. And I think I don't Shay know if anybody else has something to say about that, more qualified, but yes, please. And I think Sheikh Mustafa Steyer had something to say. Uh, Habibna, it's just a, a request to extend uh, the issue of modernism encroaching into Canaan. Uh, and perhaps not not exclusively doctrinally, but also in um, uh, the, the the element of, of dispositions. But what's the question, Habibi? I don't I don't um... uh, to uh, I, I put it in. Um, I think about fifteen minutes ago. So you were speaking about certain sciences. So I just wanted you to extend that into uh, discussion of Kalam. Uh, and 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 uh, modernism encroaching into Kanem. Uh, I I suspected you might be referring to something. Um, so uh, just the sense that uh, certain positions are being taken, which are are not not traditional. So some of that was explicit, but uh, I, think, if, I think I think the person asking the question is best best uh, place to answer the question. So yeah. No. I'll leave uh, it with you. Yeah, Habibi. Allah. That, that's coming very soon, inshallah. <laughs> um, the next one is from Sidi Asif, who's landed safely in India. Sadly, we're, we've lost him from Cambridge for the time being. I hope he returns. Salam Sheikh Karim discussed the necessity of spiritual preparation prior to epistemic inquiry on the relations between the intellect and the spiritual moral life, what is the intellectual preparation required? So this is inverting the question. What is the intellectual preparation required for the spiritual life? I think that's a very good question. I think again, uh, you know, others are more, are more able to discuss these things. I'm not really qualified to talk about spiritual 
life in that sense. Uh, I mean, there are the formal sciences that one learns. One has to learn logic and you have to learn uh, language uh, skills and you have to learn all sorts of sciences that prepare you to be able to articulate things. But the mere articulation of them within those sciences without the spiritual concomitance of living a life where these things may be realized is kind of, it's a bit like reading the menu without having a meal. You know, you, you keep reading the menu, you become an expert in the menu. You can tell me exactly what it says on every single page of the menu, but you've never tasted the food. And so it's a problem. Um, but I think he's getting at the other side of things, Molan. I'm very sorry to interrupt, but no, no, do. I, I think he's getting at the side of things, which is asking, well, let's say we have the um, Hashel Sufia, but the kind of what are sometimes known as the goofy Sufis, who are prone to think that everything goes, are prone to casually commit cover every five seconds, um, casually um, say that everyone's um, on the path to salvation because of, you know, uh, the great Rahma and uh, uh, casually uh, diverge from al-dharuriyat, al-ma'lumin al-dharura because of lacking an intellectual foundation. I think that's kind of the flip side of what we're speaking about. I, I see your book, Allah Alam, is providing something very, very important um, to safeguard Tassawaf, actually, from that kind of, those kind of excesses, which is affirming that the principle of non-contradiction um, has, may not apply on certain levels of experience, but still has application and validity, um, well, in potentia, application and, and always validity, um, regardless. Uh, I... I yeah. I personally think that's something very, very key um, in terms, because it has to really go from both sides. I mean, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not talking about intellectual, uh, uh, diminishing the intellectual life on the contrary. I'm talking about an empowered intellectual life. Uh, there is, there is a, a sub-spiritual form of intellectual life, and there's a supra-spiritual type of intellectual life. Uh, to, be, to be somebody who's awakened to a spiritual uh, um, uh, reality is not somebody who eschews the intellectual life. That's a, that's completely in, in error because any you know uh, philosophy is is nonsense without uh, without it being lived in the real world. Um, but at the same time, you know uh, you know the 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 idea that um, uh, you know we live in in a reality. And that reality is intelligible, and we need to be able to discourse and uh, be able to open up those aspects of reality in order to understand ourselves and our beliefs and our projections in this world much better, and and to guide them and direct them. So, the idea that uh, spiritual capacity is mute is problematic. It isn't. It has its achievement may be muted, but its, its concomitants intellectually cannot be. It has to pour out in some kind of intellectual project that affects and empowers people. Uh, and so I'm not somebody who uh, thinks that, uh, you know, um, the, the intellect is something that is negatory to, to the spiritual life. On the contrary, it enriches understanding. But there's an awful lot of sub-spiritual rational activity taking place. And that has a problem. That is a problem. 
because it never goes anywhere you know you know we're not here to philosophize we're here to transcend ourselves and if metaphysics in its expression helps us to do that and in a way uh, helps us to celebrate the uh, the attributes of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this world and understand the connections that are in this world with the divine and place everything on a basis of having a foundation in the divine then that is very important to understand how this is this is the architecture of reality articulated in a metaphysical form but if metaphysics is not merely rational discussion but has concomitances in the visual artistic as well as the cosmological choreography of the world that we are living in then it's important to understand those connections and each must be given its due so uh, a kind of muted spiritual quietism i'm not for no Neither is it historical, either. Hashaka. Sidi Niaz, it looks like we've got a question from you. Jazakumullah khair. I think Sidi Sachi had a question, perhaps, before me. Uh, uh, you go first, I already asked. So please, please, please. Most of you are more qualified to answer the question than Fakir, so I... Bismillah. Yeah, Bismillah. Um, Ustad Karim, maybe I could get your perspective on the um, on, on the following. Alhamdulillah, like uh, you know, I have known a bit about the work that you've done from before, but to see it uh, presented in this light, I think has really brought uh, into very bold relief. And not just some very pressing problems that all of us obviously are facing, but um, the nature and the dimensions of some of these problems. One of the things that came up, at least for myself personally, uh, in the experiences that I'm having, you know, this kind of understanding, the idea of hierarchy of knowledge, the notion that there is a confluence and a correlation and a correspondence and a relationship between these knowledges, the notion of art and beauty expressing truth and, and reality within an Islamic framework. If I try to communicate this to, let's just say certain circles, um, some of them may be friends, some of them may be family, uh, who live within a Western environment are in the West, they are very much mired in forms of life and activity that are very much serving you know, the interests of you know, capitalism uh, in, a, in a very broad manner. Um, I get one of two responses uh, in the few times that I've even bothered to try, frankly. Um, the one response is a kind of, um, this doesn't apply to me. I have, you know, uh, I work within a government function or something like that, or a corporate function. This really is way above anything that I deal with practically. Um, and doesn't apply to me at all. I, I get that reaction. And then uh, the second reaction that I get is uh, this is not going to solve, you know, uh, the most pressing political or socio-political problems that we are facing as a community in a particular community setting in, in the West. And you've alluded to it, and, and in some cases you've made it very explicit. The nature of Western the structures of society the psychological, the architectural, the way that time is organized, 
the way that work life is organized, a lot of stuff that people have talked about already in, in traditionalist writings, for example, it precludes in many ways, not fully obviously, but the possibility of being able to appreciate a lot of what you have mentioned. And I'm just, I don't know what to do in order to reach out to such people in a meaningful manner. I guess that's my question. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, uh, I think that's something we're all facing. I, when I put this question to some of the people who I believe are spiritual authorities, their response was, you have to embody the example yourself. So this is an age where you have to embody the example yourself. You cannot, uh, uh, you know, formally what we do is you'd come together and you try and convince people to do something. Well, first, in this day and age, unless there is a spiritual authority, everything will come to nothing. Uh, it's almost impossible to do anything. So you need priority. You need to prioritize spiritual authority first uh, and adherence to that. And under that umbrella and protection, then to live the example yourself. And, you know, uh, if it's true, then people will, be, uh, will come to it and things will be made easy for them. And if it's not true, then it won't. So I think that's the primary example. Secondly, is the, uh, is the more, the closer people are to the natural world. I mean, it sounds a cliche idea, but you know, from a cosmological perspective, the closer one is to the natural world, uh, the, 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 the easier it is to have clarity. It's one of those strange things. Um, the more the more that we have to do with companions of the earth, the animal world, the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the more we are, un we are in tune with those things, the clearer life becomes, the clearer ideas become. Because everything is, is uh, there's mukhataba that is constantly being made by those realities to you. And so you have to put yourself in a situation where your disposition can be healed by that. Um, so people like, you know, Muqaddasi talk about the, uh, the importance of animals and their awrad. He talks about animals having awrad and, uh, and, and being able to participate in this massive cacophony of, of tasbih that takes place on a daily basis is something that's very spiritually uplifting and allows you to have certain clarities. Um, the planting of food the, 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 the putting one's hand into the earth and things like, these are all things that we think as, as new age, hippie, whatever it is. Well, Muslims have been doing this all their lives, but they did, the difference between us and the new age, we do it within a context of knowledge, of understanding exactly what we are doing and the realities that we are in contact and in concert with. The new age people do not know. They are agnostics. They are they, they have an emotional attachment to these practices. We have an intellectual, emotional, uh, uh, visual, et cetera, et cetera. So they help to feed our creed rather than, uh, rather than, uh, rather than being separative tajribat that we are involved in. So this is what I've gained from asking people more, more qualified than myself as, as what to do. But yeah, I don't know if that... Uh, what do you think? No, that's very helpful. It's um, it's 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 a very um, 
it's a very practical and real solution uh, at the end of the day. Uh, I think some of us, we sometimes have a, an immediate, perhaps from the nefs, a kind of a desire to just go out and convince the circles that we happen to have come from family or friends. Um, but that's not the traditional methodology, clearly, uh, especially uh, when there's a lack of traditional frameworks anyway uh, in, in Western, in particular in Western societies, such that that could be done um, perhaps in a more discursive manner. Um, so yeah, it weighs on the heart sometimes, <laughs> um, but it, it, is a, it seems like a very reasonable answer and a very practical solution. I mean, remember, there's one framework that cannot be dismantled. Uh, uh, it'll be diminished, but it'll never be dismantled completely. And that's the world of nature. It's always there. And that's our framework. So they can take away many frameworks due to whatever. But so long as a bird sings and a, and a tree is, uh, has leaves and, and you can, the change of the seasons can reawaken something in you, then that can never be taken away. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone, for an immensely enjoyable and stimulating session. Thank you so much, Dr. Cream. Did Sachi have a question? We, we, you, CD, he did have a question. We didn't. Uh... Um, only if there's time for it. I don't know if, if there is time. Uh... Is there time for it, CD Hassan? Well, we've we've had two hours now, um, but All of right. course uh, we're more than. I mean, if people are happy to stay on. That's absolutely wonderful. Um, and uh, I, I well, they actually don't, they don't have to. I mean, but I can, I'd, I'd like to hear what Sachi has to if say. You, if you're able to stay on, City, actually, in all honesty, I I, I have to go at this point. So mm -hmm. I'll just I'll just disappear and I'll leave the thing on. So uh, you please go ahead. Salam alaikum. Well, alaikum salam. We'll have your questions, and then I'll have to disappear as well. Bismillah. Yes, uh, th thanks. Um, so early, earlier, earlier, you mentioned uh, this idea of non-foundationalism, uh, which is a you know significant uh, characteristic position of the analytic philosophy school. But beyond it being a position of a philosophy school, it is a kind of uh, characteristic of people that they, they don't they don't want to go back to principles, right? They don't want to go back to foundations. Um, it, it's sort of in the air, um, whether you're talking about academics or anybody else, right? Um, I'm, I'm just wondering where that comes from, and if um, if you could relate that somehow to what, because um, I think it is related to what Gunon says in his reign of quantity, um, this idea of the solidification of the world, that uh, system of materialization and you know disconnection to that which is not material uh, has kind of enclosed us, right, psychologically and this, goes back to the notion of disposition as well. It has sort of enclosed us, right, from that which is beyond the material. Um, and so, because the, the, not, the, that which is beyond the material is not as accessible to us anymore, uh, talking generally, that what instead has opened up to us is that which comes from below, right? The malefic kind of uh, uh, inclinations and other things, right? Which you did talk about uh, before. But how, how can we, Sort of put that all together. So link linking this notion of the solidification of the world to the trend of non-foundationalism, whether it's within academic philosophy or you know within culture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you don't find a foundation for things, it's because you have no. There's a kind of latitudinarianism in place. You know, where, where there's a there's a dismantling of all forms of hierarchy, and so 
you go shopping for ideas. You don't have any way of relating anything to anything. And I think one of the fundamental problems why we have this non-foundation is, which is very attractive, because it permits us to modernize things. If there are no, you know, um, I cannot build an Islamic building in Britain because there has been no precedent of Islamic building in Britain. Therefore, I will make it up, right? As opposed to understanding that the principles of, just for example, the principles of Islamic architecture are premised in taking what is uh, the most traditional form of vernacular that works within the context of region and being able to use that rather than to kind of samiz that type of form of, and the same holds for Islamic philosophy and Islamic this and that and the other, which is just like a source put on the construction that has nothing to do with Islam. It's not, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a, I think it comes from a, a sense uh, of an, underst an, an, an understanding that of impoverishment of the Islamic tradition as being concretized in particular periods of time, whether it be seventh century Arabia, or the flowering in the 13th century, or the, uh, or the you know, the, the, the synthesis of the 16th and 17th, uh, let's say in Iran and places like this. And so that's where it's at. And, there, and everything else is a kind of desert of capacity and possibilities. And non-foundationalism does permit you to travel along roads that should not be traveled and to reach conclusions that are false. And that's what we're finding with these kind of um, uh, great uh, attempts to be made. They're done in good intention, but it actually doesn't serve our purposes. And also, they're philosophically illiterate. Uh, there's a philosophical illiteracy at work when you hear people talking about non-foundationalism in that sense. It is philosophically illiterate, and it doesn't understand metaphysics. Um, and this is a, a huge problem, because whenever you find people discussing these kind of things, it, it, you will always find it uh, being discussed any, any kind of philosophical work that is undertaken by these points of view is always discussed in isolation to anything else in our tradition. And one thing that Habib Ali has tasked us with in this project is that we must understand that the organism of the Islamic Weltanschauung is one, it is a whole. You cannot separate any bit from the other. You can distinguish them, but you cannot separate them. They are all intertwined and they all have a knock-on effect to each other. It's a very kind of crystalline geometric view of the world. This, if you don't have this world, then, you know, anything goes, frankly. And we'll have people talking about, uh, you know, evolution and not evolution and so on. Evolution is one of those great fantasies that Muslims now talk about. You know, the human is okay, but, you know, the animal world and everything else because they don't understand, hang on, you cannot say that. You cannot disconnect the human being from the animal kingdom and from the natural world. You cannot say the human bus and then everything else is open season, anything can happen. You cannot do that. That, that is a cosmological illiteracy, apart from anything else. But Muslims who talk like that don't understand those sciences because it's not part of the purview of education anymore. You study fiqh, you study usul, you study whatever it is. But how does that relate to anything else? You don't know. And that's where tasawwuf is the great intertwiner. It brings things together. Because by the ta'deeb of the individual, there is an understanding of everything in its order. And ta'deeb, part of ta'deeb is having taqwa, and taqwa is to bring everything to an integrality, it's to bring everything together and understand the relationships of everything. And that's the beauty of our tradition. So there is no tajdeed necessary, and there is no 
there's nothing new under the sun, essentially. That's a very boring message for those people to receive. There aren't many research projects on, uh, you know, research grants for that, so. <laughs> anyway, I better, I better let everybody go. And uh, thank you for listening. And uh, uh, forgive me for my, um, uh, uh, you know, lack of intellectual rigor that you're used to, but inshallah, we'll, we'll see you again, bismillah, sometime. Exactly. Thank you so much. Thank you. 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 Thank